All right, Isaiah chapter 52, the last three verses of that chapter. Open your Bible, navigate on your uh, electronic device. Follow along, please. The topic, Isaiah describes the Messiah in a song considered by many the crowning jewel of the Old Testament. The title of the message, Come and Sing a Suffering Servant Song of Sprinkling. <laughs> Father, you're so good to us. You're so wonderful to us. We don't always know it or understand it because we live in a fallen world and many things affect us, Lord. Uh, it's, it's easy to get discouraged, depressed, despondent. Uh, we, we, uh, we don't see everything working together for the good, but we believe that it will because you promised it would. You also promised us suffering, Lord, and that you would be with us in our suffering. And today we begin a, a magnificent portion of Scripture where much of your suffering is revealed and, and many of the reasons for it and, and the results of it. And so, Lord, uh, guide and direct us. Uh, may your spirit just take this word, Lord, and just... Bring it to our hearts in a really neat way. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Charles Spurgeon described it as a Bible in miniature, the gospel in its essence. Kyle Yates called it the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. Franz DeLich said it is the most central, the deepest, and the loftiest thing that the Old Testament prophecy has ever achieved. It is as if it had been written beneath the cross upon Golgotha. John Calvin said, this chapter may be truly called the key to unlock the door of the entire Bible. Ivan Egnell said, without any exaggeration, it is the most important text of the Old Testament. Martin Luther, this is truly the chief place in the Old Testament. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, this chapter is the grand canyon of the Old Testament displaying the depths and heights of God's redemptive purposes. J.I. Packer, here we find the beating heart of the gospel, a chapter that encapsulates the essence of Jesus Christ's redemptive work. Oswald Chambers, the entire Bible converges on the message of Isaiah 53. Let's pray. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It, it, how, do you teach, how do you teach something like this? It's amazing. In terms of structure, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is a song. It contains five stanzas, each consisting of three verses. Because of its structure, we're confident that the last three verses of chapter 52 that we read this morning and are looking at are part of this song. It fits into the structure of the song. Remember, there were no chapter and verse divisions until around the 1200s. They're not anointed. They're not part of the uh, ins inspiration of the scripture. And this was one that they kind of biffed uh, it, because chapter 53 should start with 52, uh, 12, uh, or no, 13. And so uh, that's how we're going to take it. And the next uh, few weeks, we're going to listen to each stanza by itself. It's that important. And because each stanza uh, contains three verses, I'm going to have to adjust and organize my comments around three words, and that would be servant and suffer and sprinkle this morning. And so behold my servant, verse 13. The book of Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament. The estimate is that there are over 60 direct quotations and a handful of other indirect references. Isaiah 53 is the most quoted chapter from the most quoted book. 
There's no doubt that Jesus is the servant talked about in, these, in this song. There are, however, at least three other suggestions, a good suggestion. There's a million suggestions, but these are the three basic ones. Some see it as the nation of Israel. Others see it as King Darius uh, or Darius of Persia because he helped the Jews. And some say it's the prophet Isaiah himself. Now, the New Testament eliminates all confusion because of at least these two things. Number one, the Gospel of Luke records Jesus Christ stating, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was reckoned with transgressors, for which is written about me has its fulfillment. The scripture quoted, we'll see later in our studies, is from Isaiah 53. And so Jesus says, this scripture in Isaiah chapter 53, it's about me. Acts chapter 9, verse 35, we read how Philip, the evangelist, opened his mouth and began sharing scripture with the Ethiopian treasurer on the road. And uh, again, Jesus was, uh, or Philip says that uh, Jesus was that person that he's reading about in Isaiah 53. And so Jesus is the servant who fulfills Isaiah 53. One commentator writes, he says, it is the unanimous testimony of the New Testament that the subject and theme of Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. But what if you did not have the unanimous testimony of the New Testament? Well, it'd be much harder to come to a conclusion. It'd be harder still if you were expecting a military messiah who would conquer your enemies on the field of battle. Uh, and so I, I, I feel for the Jews, believing Jews and non-believing Jews, because it just be really, it, it's hard for us to read through this and wonder what it would be like to read it for the first time or to read it with no knowledge of Jesus in terms of his coming into the world as a man and all that kind of stuff. It'd be very, very difficult to do. The Ethiopian treasurer could not sort out Isaiah 53 until Philip provided the New Testament identification. Uh, and that's a, a, just a very simple way of putting what we're to do out in the world. We're to tell people that it's all about Jesus and, and uh, believe that their hearts are readied or, or we're helping their hearts become ready. We appreciate unlikely heroes. Strider the ranger is the unlikely true king of Gondor and the Lord of the Rings. Jesus was the unlikely king of kings who came to his own in order to bring them the kingdom, and they did not receive him. And so it says in verse 13, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Christianity is unique in many ways. One of them is that our God humbled himself and became the servant of all. We've been singing a song for a while now that has a lyric, name another God like this. And you really can't. A God who came to serve and give his life a ransom for all while we were yet sinners, while we despised God, while we were the enemies of God, the Lord Jesus Christ came as one of us and gave himself for our sins and calls us to follow him. Survey history, could anyone else do this? Buddha, Muhammad, Vishnu, what would Confucius say? Jesus isn't your personal servant, however, available to do your will. There's a thing going around right now among Christians. It's a version of, of praying they call demand prayer. 
It's just what you think it is, sadly. They emphasize a particular definition of the word ask, and they say this, there is no doubt that this word describes someone who prays authoritatively in a sense demanding something from God. This person knows what he needs and is so filled with faith that he isn't afraid to boldly come into God's presence to ask for his Ferrari and expect to receive what he has requested. And so, you know, the Bible says Jesus served you by dying on the cross and taking upon himself your sin. That's the service that we're talking about. It follows that we serve by dying to ourselves daily, right? If that's what Jesus did, then that's what we do because we are his followers, we're his disciples. We don't demand, we wait for the Lord to command. We're now, we're now reduced to servants. You know, he was a servant, he remains a servant in many ways, but not in the sense of doing what we need done. You dads and moms, are you teaching your kids to demand everything and anything that they want? Well, they're doing a pretty good job of it themselves. You don't need to add to that, right? Is that even a relationship or the basis for a real, real fellowship that, you know, I need you to give me everything I want? The person who does that in the New Testament is the prodigal son. He says, hey, you know, he, he should be the poster boy for demand prayer. But of course, he's not. You know, these people think that it's, it's an important thing. So, but he comes to the father and he says, hey, I want my inheritance right now. I'm, I'm gonna go out and do what I wanna do. I don't care about you. Get old with my older brother. You know, I just, I just want what's coming to me right now. <clears throat> I don't wanna have a relationship with you. I just, I demand what's mine. Did Jesus make demands upon his Father in heaven? No, not really. Jesus never told his Father what to do for him. Just the opposite. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatsoever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Uh, and so don't, don't be shook up by these things that come through, uh, these prayer you know, books and these types of prayer and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Just have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You come to the Lord. He forgives you your sin. He gives you a new nature. The Holy Spirit lives within you. Just get to know the Lord. And, and you know, you don't, you don't need any principles of prayer, and you certainly don't need those that are heretical and, and that don't look like a, any kind of relationship you would ever want to have. Uh, we do that a lot here. We, we sometimes step back and say, you know, what kind, of, what kind of father would do this, or is this what you want as a father and mother, or that kind of thing? I mean, we need a lot more common sense, I think, when we approach the Bible. And to just think, hey, I wouldn't want a family like that. Maybe you had a family like that. And so, you know, don't be led astray by these things. The word prudently doesn't capture the power of what is being said. The International Standard Version translates this, prospering. The effort to redeem lost humanity will prosper. It will succeed. It is the perfect plan executed by the perfect person. Verse 13 goes on and it says, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Extolled isn't a word we use very much, or at least I don't. It has a bunch of possible definitions. Uh, you know, you don't have to be a, a linguist to go to Strong's Concordance and read some of the ways it's used. Standard, uh, and that's like a banner on a high pole 
a standard, uh, or lifted up, uh, or it could mean refuge. Uh, and, and that's interesting because what it's saying, obviously, is that the Messiah would be a standard lifted up on a high pole for anyone who would seek refuge. Sound familiar? Well, if you are familiar with the exodus of the Jews from Egypt, you're going to remember an episode in which poisonous serpents came into the camp and bit uh, the Israelites. Uh, Moses put a bronze serpent on a pole, and it became a standard. Any Israelite who was bitten could simply look at the pole lifted up, and it would be a refuge to them in that they would not die. They would be healed. Jesus told us that it was a picture of the salvation refuge he would accomplish by being lifted up on the cross in the wilderness. Uh, it says uh, in uh, somewhere, uh, John, I think, yeah, it's the Gospel of John. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, you may have seen a bee movie in which someone ends up in the snake pit. Multiple snakes bite and hang on, accompanied by lots of screaming and blood. That's how unbelievers look from heaven. Take refuge at the cross. And so you're like in the camp of the unbelievers if you're not a believer. And God looks down and, and you've been bit by serpents. The serpents are hanging off your cheeks. They're on your forehead. They're, you know, so you don't know it. You're just... You know, I don't feel quite right. You, yeah, everything okay with you? Yeah, I don't feel quite right either, you know, and stuff. But you can't see. And so this is the deal. And so, and so the, you know, the Lord says, come and take refuge at the standard I've given, at, at Jesus on the cross. And all of that will fall away and you'll be saved. The cross upon which the Lord died is the only remedy for defeating who, the one who's called that serpent of old, the devil, and Satan. Exalted also involves being lifted up, but in context, Isaiah was no longer talking about the cross. This is Jesus lifted up to heaven in his ascension. In the book of Acts, the apostle Peter preached, and he said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so uh, the Lord uh, will be exalted in that way. Uh, he is exalted now at the right hand of the Father. Uh, he'll come back soon and uh, you know, deal with things that are happening on the earth. The Jews were awaiting the Messiah. And so Isaiah described him here. They were confused. They, you know, hey, like the Ethiopian, is, is he talking about himself or a nation? Who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus. He would be a servant to all by dying in a manner illustrated by the serpent on the pole so that anyone who looked to him for salvation would be saved. We can see this would be a hard sell for those with hardened hearts uh, and, you know, for what they're looking for. And, um, I think sometimes we can't really know what we were thinking until after you know, we've come through it a little bit. Uh, but uh, obviously, the worldview that the Jews had adopted uh, radically affected their ability to receive truth from God. Uh, and and they, it's easily provable 
uh, from historical texts that, that they were looking for a savior who would destroy the Roman Empire, or at least make them free again from Rome, a military messiah, a, a, you know, a strategist, a genius, that kind of thing. And, and as I said, I, I don't know that I can, in a sense, blame them, because it just would have been hard to know otherwise, but they could have just waited on the Lord. But anyway, this is what they were looking for. And so we have to be careful. Obviously, we, we're human beings. We must do the same, right? I mean, I'd like to think that when I read something or I encounter something that my mind is just clear of bias uh, or prejudice and that I just, you know, this is the way it is. Uh, but that's just not true. We are so influenced. Years ago, I think I've used this illustration before, but it's okay. Uh, Frank Peretti, Christian writer, he wrote a book that was very, very popular. It's called This Present Darkness, I think. I read it finally. It's a really good book, engaging. Uh, it, it has to do with spiritual warfare and his view of how angels fight and you know, what's going on behind the scenes and all that kind of stuff. And I forget the terminology now because I couldn't find my book, but there was uh, it's kind of like a demonic oppression going on or different things happening in the lives of the characters in the book. And so for a while, like every Sunday, somebody would come up and, and say, hey, um, you know, I feel like this, you know, and it, I'd recognize one of the characters from the book. And I'd say, oh, wow, you know, it's you know, demonic, something happening in the house or whatever. And I said, well, let's pray. I said, but let me ask you a question first. You, by any chance, have you read this book? Oh, yeah, it's a great book. I'm reading it now. I said, okay. And, and I'd have to very gently suggest that maybe you're being influenced by the book. Do you think that's possible? I mean, so what's happening in the book is happening in your life? Yeah. Had it happened before the book? No. Uh, and I've been caught in stuff like that before. It's like, hey, you know, come on, step back. Take a really hard look at it and, and see you know, that you're wrong uh, about your presuppositions. And so we all do that, need to be careful because obviously it, it has consequences. Uh, if we get going down the wrong track in terms of following the Lord and what we think he's doing, uh, then that's the, you know, we're going to get far afield of, of our ministry. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a savior. Verse 14, behold my suffering servant. After 20 plus movies in the final battle, Captain America finally said it. What did he say? You fans? Avengers? Oh man, thank you. <laughs> Nobody read comic books? How many of you read comic books when you were a kid? All right. Obviously, Archie, and you know, but uh, anyway. No, Captain Mary, that's his famous thing, Avengers. But if you remember from the movie, the way he said it was very, very interesting. He said something like, Avengers, assemble. I mean, you're waiting for him to shout it out. And it was just so, I mean, none of the Avengers could hear him, obviously. And so it just, but it was that moment in the movie. But it, it reminds me, you know, you can say things a lot of different ways, inflection and tone and, you know, the speed of your voice and all that. And so... Uh, you know, that was an interesting choice. Here's some Latin for you. You'll recognize this. Ecce homo, right? Ecce homo. That are the Latin words used by Pontius Pilate in the Vulgate translation of the Gospel of John. He presents a scourged Jesus bound and crowned with thorns to the hostile crowd. And in English, uh, he says homo, uh, you know, ecce homo, but in English it's behold the man. It, he brings Jesus out and he says, behold the man. How did he say it, I wonder? 
I mean, what, what was his inflection? What was he trying to get across? Was it emotional? Was he loud? Was he soft? I've heard stories, um, back to the Lord of the Rings, I, th I couldn't find the, the exact reference to it, but there's a scene in one of the films where Gandalf is talking to Strider, Aragorn, uh, Strider, and they're wondering if Frodo is still alive, if he's still on his journey. And, you know, it's, it's a really, it's an important scene. It's an interesting scene. And they were saying that uh, Peter Jackson made them do it, I don't know, 25 different times because he wanted to capture just the right inflection of their voices. And so they would change it a little bit each time and talk about it and all that. And so, I mean, we can really communicate a lot just by how we talk and what we put on it. And so three English words, two Latin words, the very brevity of it catches your breath. I mean, that's all that he had to say at that moment. And yet it encapsulated so much of what was going on. Uh, a man's life was at stake. Actually, uh, the history of a nation was at stake. The world was at stake in the sense that Jesus must move forward to the cross. Right? You, you understand that, right? Pilate brought Jesus out, and he says, behold the man. And if the crowd had, you know, oh, we have sympathy for him, let him go. I mean, the Lord needed to go to the cross. He had set his mind and heart on it. And so the Lord, uh, ready to go, and God, the Father, behind the scenes working at that. Uh, just as, verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. There are a few ways of reading, the, or hearing this, rather. One would be that Pilate's appraisal is Jesus was just a man. Because remember, they, they had accused him of uh, you know, saying, oh, he, he says he's God and he wants to take over Rome and all that. And Pilate says, well, obviously he's just a man. He's not going to do that. We just beat him near death, right? So uh, there's, you know, we did everything we should do. In fact, we've gone beyond what we should do because he hasn't committed any crime. And, of course, you remember that Pilate's wife had spoke to him and said, hey, don't have anything to do with this guy. And so he was nervous and wondering what was happening. Uh, he was, and so, you know, behold the man. Was it sympathy with which he spoke, though? Was, was he saying, look at him. He's barely recognizable as a man. He's obviously suffered enough. What more do we need to do? Here's another, probably not what Pilate meant, but certainly appropriate. Behold the man, and that word for man can be mankind. And, and, so what does that mean? Well, Pilate wouldn't have known. It would be like Caiaphas who says that he prophesied uh, you know, that one should die for the nation. But he was a pagan. You know, he wasn't really a follower of the Lord. He was just being used. And so perhaps he meant that. Behold mankind. You see, Jesus was representing the human race. His many biblical names include the last Adam or the second man. That's found in 1 Corinthians 15 towards the end. The first man, Adam, had failed in the Garden of Eden. The second man, Jesus, had succeeded thus far on earth, and he was going to finish it by dying in our place. And so Adam blew it, Jesus came, and represents us a second time uh, so that he can deal with the sin. Um, God told Adam and Eve that if they disobeyed him, they would die. They ate the forbidden fruit, probably a fig, maybe a fig newton, 
We, we like to point out it's probably a fig because what, what did they sew together immediately? Yeah, not an apple skin. You don't read that they were covered with apple skins, you know, and stuff. Core that apple. You know, but uh, no, they were there. So uh, we don't know. But uh, they ate the forbidden fruit. And this is no big deal in terms of, you know, God restricting them. I mean, there were probably, not probably, there were tons of other things they could eat. Uh, they go for it. You know, everything else, you know, all this other vegetation and stuff is yours. Every tree that you can think of, you know, but God said, you can't eat this one. And so the devil came and tempted them and they ate. And when they did, they died. They immediately died spiritually. They began to die physically and they would die eternally, meaning they would die and then live forever separated from God in constant conscious torment. And so death, they, they, they in a sense, understood death. There was no death before Adam and Eve. There was, you know, they didn't kill animals or set traps or anything. They weren't even vegetarians. They were fruitarians uh, in the sense that they didn't kill, uh, you know, uh, the plants. They didn't have to ruin them, but they just ate fruit. And, and so they uh, didn't know death, but now they would. And immediately they knew they were naked. They, we believe Adam and Eve probably were emanating light, you know, there's a lot of, in the scripture about the covering of light and all that. Anyway, they, they were naked, they knew what that meant, and they started to physically die. How many, anybody get out of bed this morning and not creak or, uh, you know, something like that? I'm to the point now where I have to get up and stand, Pam thinks I'm some kind of crazy person, obviously, because I, have to, I get up and I have to stand there for a while to make sure I'm not dizzy and you know, that kind of thing. And so, but I'm just standing there at the wall like this, you know. She'll turn on her iPad and say, are you okay? And I'll, then I'll, I'll make, you know, have fun with it. So, you know, I'll do stuff like that. But, uh, uh, you know, and then you start, then I step on the scale and then I trip over the cat. And I mean, it's, you know, it's that kind of thing. But, you know, so Adam, can you imagine, uh, what is that? Oh man, I got pain in my shoulder, honey. Would you massage me? What are you talking about? You know, that kind of thing. But so they began to die physically and they would have died spiritually and been separated from God forever. Thanks to our original parents, we inherit a sin nature. Sin is also imputed to us. It's as if we have a heavenly bank account and in it right now is sin before we get saved. And we commit individual sins. I mean, nobody can deny that. Our only hope is that a second Adam a second man would be born without a sin nature. Then he could resist the temptation of the devil and he would need to live a sinless life and then be willing to die in our place. That's a tall order, right? I mean, that you know, it's like, hey, um, hey angels, hey people, here's what we need now. We need a uh, second Adam who can do all of these things. And you know what? There's, there's only one person in the entire universe well, the universe is something God created just for us. I mean, in all of creation, there's only one person, and that is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And he did. It says, Philippians 2, 8, and 9, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And so that's it in a nutshell, really, is that that's what the Lord did for us. That's what his suffering uh, and his servanthood led to. The tempest's awful voice was heard. O Christ, it broke on thee. Thine open bosom was my ward. It braved the storm for me. 
Thy form was scarred, thy vigils marred, now cloudless peace for me. And verse 15, rather, behold, my suffering servant sprinkles. We need a cleansing which makes us fit for God's holy presence. An outward sprinkling of water symbolized by the inward, uh, to symbolize the inward sprinkling of our souls. In verse 15, we read, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. If you're a king, but you keep your mouth shut before another king, that king is the king of kings, right? And so we're talking about Jesus as king of kings in his second coming. Uh, This is after his return. He establishes the kingdom of God on earth that will last 1,000 years. It is not a symbolic number. It is an actual number. It is a future thing that's going to happen. We're not in the kingdom now. There are people who believe that, that we're in the spiritual kingdom now uh, and that eventually the world will be good enough for the Lord to actually come back to it. They see the thousand as a, a symbol rather than as literal, and they're just wrong. Uh, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. But anyway, back to uh, the verse we're in. Um, Israel, and Jerusalem especially, will be the capital of the world. Humans in mortal bodies will still be on the earth, and they're going to need salvation, and that's depicted here as the sprinkling. And so here's what happens. Jesus comes back. Battle of Armageddon is going on. He, he deals with that. At some point after his second coming, he judges between what Matthew says are sheep and goats. Sheep are those who are believers who survive the great tribulation, and the goats are unbelievers who survived the Great Tribulation. And the, the goats are sent off to Hades for punishment and to await the final resurrection uh, you know, for them. Whereas the believers in mortal bodies, if you are saved in the Tribulation and you make it to the end uh, and you're a Christian, you'll still be in your regular mortal body and you will be the first citizens of the kingdom of God on earth, you'll begin to reproduce, and by the end of the thousand years, there are multiplied millions and millions and millions of people on the planet. Uh, And um, so uh, they will need, as you, you're a believer, but as you have children, and they have children, and they have children, they are born in unbelief. They're just regular human beings like you are uh, with a sin nature who need to accept Jesus Christ as their savior and so what this is telling us is that just like you would take and sprinkle water all over somebody, you know, the, these guys, it wasn't really a sprinkling, but when I have uh, my grandboys sometimes wash the car for me, and uh, of course they wet each other with, you know, I mean, you have to, you know, it's so middle of winter, ah, page, you know, ah, stop that. Anyway, it's, it's fun. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, so you, the Lord said, hey, it's be like a sprinkling. Gospel's going to be shared, and many will get saved, undoubtedly. Uh, it, it, again, I would appeal to the remarkable conversion of the Ethiopian treasurer. Think of him in terms of verse 15. For what had not been told him, he saw, and what he had not heard, he considered. Philip told him the good news of salvation. He saw it, and his wanting to be baptized by Philip means he considered and received the Lord. There'll be a whole lot of sprinkling going on in the kingdom. Now, there's something else subtle that's happening in this song that uh, hopefully, Lord willing, we can get more into later. 
It seems that the five stanzas uh, going into you know, chapter uh, 53 itself, it seems that they match the five Levitical offerings in the Old Testament. And so if you read the book of uh, Leviticus, it talks about five specific offerings that the priest makes. Uh, one is the burnt offering, and that's what we see here in Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. And then we'll see the meal offering represented, and then the peace offering, and then the sin offering, and then the trespass, or they call it the guilt offering, as we get into chapter 53. The Hebrew word for burnt offering means to ascend. Literally, we would say to go up in smoke. And so this was the, uh, you would bring the, the uh, you know, animal you were sacrificing, and it would go up in smoke uh, to the Lord. And uh, the entire animal would be consumed except for the hide. The smoke from the sacrifice ascends to God, and it is a soothing aroma, it says, to the Lord. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9. And so we would, by you know, meditating on this and looking at it, we would say, well, it prefigures Jesus on the cross uh, in several ways. And so it's another way of illustrating what is happening. And it says, you know, there's several ways. One, his physical life was completely consumed. And in sense, Jesus genuinely died. Uh, we get to Easter, and it, we always like to point out the different theories of the resurrection uh, to try and debunk it. And one of them was that Jesus didn't really die. He just, they used the word swoon. He swooned, and then once he got uh, mummified and spices put on him and was in the dark, dank tomb, the cold weather kind of, wow, this is cool, you know, woke him up. And he then somehow rolled the stone away from inside and crawled off, and the, you know, and that's how Christianity started. I mean, so that's one theory. Uh, but you know, and so, but he went up in smoke in in the sense that he genuinely died, uh, and it ascended to him and and his father. Uh, so he, uh, secondly, he ascended to God. We know that's what happened. The two men, after several days, they said, "Hey, what are you doing, looking for Jesus here? He's ascending into heaven. He'll, you know, come back." Uh, and then his covering, that is his garment, was distributed to those who officiated over his sacrifice. And he gives to those who believe in him a robe of righteousness. And so all of these things are prefigured in this burnt offering. The Jews understandably had a hard time seeing the Messiah as their suffering servant. They still don't see him that way. Uh, we like to talk a lot about how when the Antichrist comes, uh, they will receive him because he enters into a military geopolitical treaty with them. And that's the savior they're looking for. They're, they're looking for somebody who can uh, you know, stare down their enemies and, and protect them. Uh, and that's what they were looking for in the first century and that's what they've been looking for. And, and, but now, in addition to just the words themselves that the prophets spoke, they also had lots of symbolism uh, in th places like the temple and the tabernacle and in the garments that the priests wore and all. And, and there was more, you know, some people, they like to say, well, I'm more of a visual learner, right? Are you a visual learner? Or are you, just, you know, I'd rather read something. And that's how I comprehend. Actually, I don't comprehend very much, but, uh, you know, I'm not very visual. I can't, you know, go back and forth like that. And, and so uh, this was God's attempt. He says, hey, here's a, the temple system, the tabernacle system, whatever. Uh, this is symbolic of what the Messiah is going to do. And so God desiring to, to speak to us in every possible way that he can. 
and hopefully the symbolism would help. So the sacrifices, the rituals, the feasts, they all prefigured the coming Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and so, um, you know, that's what these verses are preparing them for. Lord, through the blood of the Lamb that was slain, cleansing for me, cleansing for me, from all the guilt of my sin now I claim cleansing from thee, cleansing from thee. Sinful and black, though the past may have been, many the crushing defeats I have seen. Yet on thy promise, O Lord, now I lean, cleansing for me, cleansing for me. From all the sins over which I have wept, cleansing for me, cleansing for me. Far, far away by the blood current swept, cleansing for me, cleansing for me. Jesus, thy promise I dare to believe, and as I come, thou dost now me receive that over sin I may never more grieve, cleansing for me, cleansing for me. Let's pray.